Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Backyard Professor live. Welcome to the show. I have Dr. Trevin Hatch, BYU scholar and professor here tonight. We are going to show you all about Jesus, but not just any Jesus, the actual Jesus from his own culture, which we have a living expert right here to guide us unfailingly through it all. Let's get this show on the road. We're going to do the New Testament stuff tonight. Yes, sir, Bob. Yes, we are live. Absolutely. Uh, I have my good friend, Dr. Trevin Hatch from Brigham Young University. Trevin, how are you doing tonight? Doing good. Thanks. Thanks, Carrie. Or do you want me to call you Backyard Professor? No, call me Carrie. All my friends call me Backyard Professor. <laughs> we're not formal around here we we uh we are when it comes to doing the knowledge and the analysis and stuff but uh yeah we, we're good friends here so you call me carrie i'll call you dr trevin no i'll just call you trevin sounds good so looks like we've got a pretty good group of people tonight which is awesome welcome everybody welcome all you folks who are new to the channel and the subscribers uh, we do this every Sunday night, try to have good quality guests. Um, so I see quite a few of you that I know. Peter Higg, Newton Lemno, Scale Caps, and Patrick Kelly, Doug, Vincent, Mosia. I love all you guys. You're awesome. Peter Higgs, I mentioned. Elisa Gal Galleen. I keep messing up your name, hon. I am so sorry. Tim Rathbone. I saw Radio Free Mormon. Yes. No, that theme music is mine, Radio Free Mormon. You cannot have it. And then uh, I saw Dan Bogle. I know. I talked to Dan Bogle earlier tonight. He said he's going to be here. There he is. Yeah. John Rossmarski. Mustang. Hey, welcome. I haven't seen you here before, at least not your name. Welcome, Mike Weiss. Good to see you. Work for Luterworth. Good to see you. You might be new also. If so, welcome. We're glad to have you. We like new people, old people, middle people, young people, in-between people. It doesn't matter, just so you're all people. Tonight, I am excited. I'm sorry I'm being so frivolous, but I am so excited to have Dr. Hatch here Um because I'm trying to do this New Testament commentary. 
idea. The, the Sunday school you always wanted to have but never did. That's kind of how I bill it out. Meaning that I like to, just like my opening says, I, I like to look at all angles of the New Testament, not just the doctrine, even though that is fun as well. It really is. But first off, let's say, Dr. Hatch, we're going to have you kind of introduce yourself a little bit. But before you do, I do want to at least brag on you just a little bit. You guys, Dr. Hatch has his own YouTube channel. And this is a great, oh, well, not that one. This is a great place to look. He's got several videos. Uh, look at some of his, his videos, the angry God and the Canaanite genocide, Jesus among the rabbis, interview with gospel tangents. He's been on gospel tangents, the entire book of Genesis in one hour, Amos, Obadiah, and Jesus, strangers in Jerusalem. He's got a lot of videos up here that, oh, whoop. Yes. Holy cow, that's that's it, isn't it? That's one of them. Look at that start. Look how beautiful he does this stuff, you guys. Dude, you're like a pro. I'm such a punk compared to you. Look at that. That's beautiful. There's Israel. Dr. Trevin G. Okay, anyway, so so the idea is. If you want to learn more about the New Testament and about Jesus from an expert, I have this gentleman here I'm introducing you to, Dr. Hatch, why don't you tell us what, you know, you're, you young people really make us old farts mad sometimes <laughs> because you've told me you're also working on a second PhD. That is so awesome. Two of them, Colby Townsend's doing the same thing. So what is what is your educational background? Tell us who you are. Okay, yeah, thanks. Uh, it's a it's a story in and of itself, and there's a, there's a lot going on there. No, nobody likes an overachiever. So whenever I'm introduced and I'm like, I got two master's degrees and working on my second doctorate and doing all this stuff, it sounds like it really sometimes it's embarrassing for certain reasons uh, oh. because in, in our culture, especially I'm, I'm in the church. I'm at BYU. And, and when I go to, when I move to new wards and I introduce myself, I'm kind of shy to say, not to say too much, because if I start, you know, rattling off my training or if they ask me, Oh, what do you do there? Are you a professor? What do you teach? And uh, there's always somebody in the room who won't like me simply because I'm an academic. Uh, that's just the, the world we live in. So anyway, so the whole story behind all that. So I started at BYU in ancient Near Eastern studies and I moved over. Uh, I got spooked early because I could see the writing on the wall fairly early. And that is Latter-day Saints who study the Bible are not getting jobs outside of BYU. I mean, there's a there's one or two, literally like two people, two or three. I know three on the, off the top of my head. Um, so I moved over to history, pulled all my engineering Eastern studies credits, Hebrew, all, that, all, all those classes over to history and finished there. So then I thought, I don't want to go do biblical studies. Again, that's what I love, but um, I'm not going to get a job. So let me do something broader, and I chose Jewish studies. That's not broader. That's not more practical, but I thought it was. Right? <laughs> uh, you know, it's really it's really hard to navigate this as a student because you have these 
these uh, goals that you want to be an academic, but we really don't, we, we don't know how problematic this profession is, the, the, the politics, the cultiness of it, <laughs> uh, until we until we're yeah. down the road. So anyway, I went to, I did a master's degree at Baltimore Hebrew University uh, in Jewish studies, and I uh, applied to Brandeis and I applied to a lot of these Jewish study schools, and I got into them, and I, I ended up at Baltimore Hebrew. This is a fantastic experience. I lived in around uh, North North Baltimore. Hundred thousand Jews live up there. I had you know fifteen synagogues within you know two miles, so that was great. Um, so then I could not. This is right after the recession, so I was getting rejected to all the PhD programs I applied to, and if I got into one, they had no funding. So I came back to UVU from twenty. 10 to 2012 and taught philosophy, taught philosophy and ethics and religion at UVU while picking up Greek. So I hadn't, I didn't have Greek yet. I just had uh, Hebrew and Aramaic, you know, German and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. two years I was teaching over there to teaching those kids. That was a fun, different experience over there than, uh, than what I got at BYU. Um, but then uh, I, I got rejected again and I had my, I didn't know what else to do. I had my GRE scores was high. It was really high 93rd percentile in the verbal, I had my GPA, I had all these languages and I wasn't getting in. So I was about to give up and say, forget this, I'll do something else. But I decided to give one more go around to apply. But instead of just staying in Jewish studies or early Jewish studies or Bible, like the world of the Bible, Jewish study stuff, I looked around the country for anybody who studied Judaism or Israel, you know, even even if it's modern Israel. And I was looking at political science, I was looking at comparative literature. I was looking everywhere for anybody that would allow me to just study, you know, study and, and stay in religious studies. So I find this guy at, at LSU in the Bayou, and he was in, he was a family study scholar, but he was in a school of social work. He was not a social worker, but he studied Jewish, Christian, and Muslim family life. So I thought, okay, oh. maybe I called him up and I said, that's not really what I had in mind, you know, move to family studies. Uh, I was more of a historian and, you know, mm-hmm. can I make the, you know, can I make the transition in right into a PhD program in the social sciences? He's like, yeah, we'll train you on everything. We'll train you on the method. Uh, we interview, we interview people, we interview families. And, and he said, I've got a thousand pages of data on American Jews and we haven't coded it. We haven't done anything with it. It's all yours. So I, I knocked out that um, dissertation pretty quick, but it's still not. So I'm, I'm a trained PhD social scientist. And I apply right. a lot of the questions that social scientists asks ask about, you know, like the power structures and the, you know, the relationship between the the lower class and the upper class, like all, all that kind of stuff, um, identity and all that kind of stuff. So I apply that to the ancient world. But when I was at LSU, my first love was the world of the Bible and Hebrew and Jewish history. So I applied to another doctoral program in Chicago at the Spurtis Institute of Jewish Studies in Chicago. We got a big, beautiful building right there on Michigan Avenue, looking over, overlooking uh, Lake Michigan. So I started that program as well. And I, I, concurrently, I just was running two doctoral programs at the same time, really just take, I had some funding and it was just, in my head, it's just the same doctoral training. I'm, not, I'm being trained as a, a PhD, but it looks more impressive than it is. It's just two different things. Anyway, so it's a lot of work. I'm still <laughs> finishing it. Ten oh, years. Yeah. I started in Bolton 2012. I finished one in 2015, and I'm still writing the dissertation on the other one. Nice. So that's the whole. That's the whole thing. Oh, then, then when I came to BYU, I'm actually a faculty member in the library. So my main appointment is uh, I'm the religious studies, Middle East, um, biblical studies 
engineering, those are the subjects, but I'm the research specialist, the librarian in the library. So, oh, that that could actually be seriously helpful, though. That's cool yes. because I've spent many a year, days, years. I've been down there several times, photocopying boatloads of stuff, and that's quite a library to be in. So that's good. Hey, it was in the BYU library where I was standing there in the aisle that had all of the Jewish material on that side, and I mean, it went down for 150 <laughs> yards, right. eight eight shelves high, and on this side was some other culture thing, and it was there that it dawned on me. I had to search for a book that Nibley had referenced, and I finally found the book and photocopied the part I needed. It was at that moment it dawned on me. I am never going to be able to read just that side of one shelf of hundreds of shelves <laughs> and a dozen stories. And I started to weep. I realized my ignorance is really complete. Uh, I'm fully ignorant of all of this fantastic knowledge. And I'll never, it, it was an exhilarating, depressing moment all at the same time. And I sat down there. There was a little desk chair thing over by the wall. And I sat down and cried for about half an hour. The one gal came up said, are you okay? Said, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> so anyway, boy, what a weird perspective I've got. Yeah. And it's so, a fun, you know, it's a fun career, but it's not what I had in mind when I applied. I found out about it and I thought, oh, librarianship like at the time the stereotypes was like that's kind of hokey you know i mean that's not i mean librarianship it's not doesn't seem very serious but once i started looking into it and i i found out that it's i have faculty status but everything i'm doing all day long deals with the subject area like i do have committee work that i go and sit on committees but sure. i have students come into my office i have a whole bunch from anthropology middle east and religion um and they you know they need help with their papers and they're, they're really good subjects i mean these are these are history students and Middle East students. So I, I'm helping them. I'm helping faculty get what they need. And, uh, and I do my own research. So it's the yeah. best kept secret in academics. And I don't have to teach, uh, you know, I don't have to be locked into teaching the four, four, two, you know, four class in the fall, four in the winter, two in the summer. Right. So it's, it, it's a fantastic job. So I had to yeah. get another master's degree in library science. They paid for it. So that, this is the, the whole story about why so much education you know, what's interesting is sometimes I'll interact with people online and and they'll they'll see and maybe this will segue us into, you know, the next thing that we can talk about. But I had people tell me uber conservative, like ultra like Orthodox Latter-day Saints online tell me that I'm, I'm I've been poisoned by academia. The fact that I'm a social scientist and a Jewish studies scholar and like I've been trained in these different areas, ultra liberal fields that I can't possibly come out of that without being like a full blown Marxist. And I, you know, I've, I've been tainted by that stuff. And so really we're, we're living it. We still have that, those remnants of a anti, anti expert or anti academia. Uh, anyway, so we'll talk well, about some of this today. Right now, right now I can state based on my experience, you are truly in a 
seriously magnificent library, probably not the best in the nation, but for private universities, BYU is second to none. And it's in their Jewish Hebrew biblical materials because of the theme of the restoration of the gospel that BYU has put to, and I know the Arabic collection because of Nibley and all that, the ancient studies and all that, but uh, I mean, the shelves just go on. It is a scholar's uh, mouth-watering dream come true to research in BYU library. I, I was just, I enjoyed every time I went. And it's a gorgeous building, man, outside and in as far as that goes. So I said, you know, my, my partner, my partner, he's, uh, he's two doors down. He's the, so I do all religion that's not Latter-day Saint. Bible religion, world religions, and then Middle East anthropology. He does church history and doctrine. And so together, we purchased everything that we can get. And we've had people get mad at us for, for pulling in any kind of like anti-Mormon, you know, whatever, or whatever they want to label it. We pull that stuff in. Like we want, we want to purchase everything that we can get. And we have a robust budget. It's, yeah. it's great. It's a great place to be. Well, I'm going to start writing some books then, and I want you to purchase 200,000 copies of them, if you would, please. <laughs> you I, your, your books are more valuable in that library than any I'll ever write. Uh, by the way, let me tell the audience, too, uh, we are going to be talking about uh, Trevin's book, that stranger, it is named Stranger in Jerusalem. And I just finished it this week and it is absolutely marvelous. Um, just really incredible. We will talk a little bit about that as an overview tonight, and we will be doing more sessions together and doing a deep dive on, say, uh, Judas Iscariot, the nature of the Gospels, the time era that we're involved with and dealing with. Uh, this is sensational information. The thing I've loved about Dr. Hatch's work so far in his book is I've read all this stuff. I get it because I've studied enough of the biblical scholarship that I, I'm somewhat familiar with it. I'll put it that way. And yet, Trevin comes along in his book, and it might be the way he writes, but it actually clarified several issues that I have had in my mind that I, and I've read this stuff before from academic scholars, that I never got that kind of a clarity. And so I would strongly encourage everybody, stranger, stranger in Jerusalem. Is that stranger in Jerusalem, right? That's the name of your book. Oh, uh, a stranger referring to Jesus. A a I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. A stranger in Jerusalem. Um, yep. Fantastic book. You are a credit to BYU for being such a wonderful, clarifying writer. I'm here to tell you right now, you are a gold forehead on their star. <laughs> so, Thank you. Appreciate uh, it. And, and the other thing I want to do real quick before I let you start gabbing, there is a book that I bought specifically for my New Testament commentary series, New Testament History, Culture, and Society, put together by BYU, a background of the text of the New Testament. Lincoln Blumel is the editor. He's done an absolutely excellent job gathering some of the cream of the crop for scholarship. 
this is the big red book. It's huge. It's like, I mean, it's huge. 800 pages. There's dozens of articles in this, you guys. I've only gotten through the first five chapters, and lo and behold, David Rolf Seeley is in it. He's pretty good. Um, lo and behold, I get over here to chapter five, Messianism and Jewish Messiahs in the New Testament period by a gentleman named Trevin G. Hatch. You're looking at the man. He's He's been able to contribute to what I will term, now, and forgive me for saying it this way, but I went into Deseret Book. Number one, I hesitated because I know, I get it. The church-owned bookstore wants to promote testimony, build faith, etc. And so some of their stuff is less than scholarly. I'll put it this way. So I was going to the scholarly section if you can even, compared to BYU Library, look, I, I'm not trying to insult Deseret Book. Any any bookstore compared to BYU Library is certainly going to be pap and pablum and fluff. BYU Library is serious about their stuff. So I went to the scholar section, and this is one of the books I bought, and this is the one I'm using, and now I have one of the authors on my show, and we will be doing other shows together. So tonight, you're going to get a good treat. Let me um, add, can, I add, can I add real quick? This uh, I just happen to have a city here. This my book here. Yes. I didn't write this to Latter day Saints. I mentioned nothing in here about restoration. Hold it up to your screen, Trevin. Hold it up to your screen better. Yeah, it's a beautiful cover. I like it. Yeah, this is not written just to Mormon. The, the academia in this and the audience, the range of the audience is perfect, in my opinion. I, I yeah, love this kind of stuff. And that, the, the people on the back is, I've got, and these are friends of mine. I know these people. I asked them to endorse it. I've got Peter Haas, professor of Jewish studies emeritus at Case Western Reserve. Victor Myrlman, he's uh, is a rabbi in Chicago and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He's taught at Columbia. And Leonard Greenspoon, who I've actually edited a book with. Leonard and Ooh. I, Leonard Greenspoon is the Jewish studies chair at Creighton. So, you know, I know these people. And so, yeah, this is not... Uh, I'm not trying to cram in any kind of restoration insights. I'm not ashamed of that stuff. It's just not what this book is. Um, you know, I, I wanted to write this to a larger audience. Right, right. Now, and, and I can appreciate that folks do appreciate, and it's all valid, when they do get restoration insights. But um, this particular approach in the New Testament history, culture, and society really has appeared to me to put together an academia rigorous approach, just like it says, a background to the text of the New Testament. I think they've done it. There are articles on plants. There's articles on clothing, which you wouldn't think were interesting. They are really interesting. I am so not joking. I I, I was skeptical when I picked up. I said, why on earth would you? Who cares about the plants and what kind of shoes they wear? But it's interesting. It really does make a difference to our appreciating the texts and the time. I, look, we're going back 2,000 years. It's very difficult to assess what happened 2,000 years ago, even with written texts as your book so masterfully shows. So you want to talk about 
Let's see, what did we need? Oh, your information on Judas Iscariot was really eye-opening to me. I was somewhat familiar from other areas on on a different and then we've got this gospel of judas iscariot the recently discovered one and you didn't even bring that in much just your careful excellent reading of the texts and the information from a judaic point of view gave you some insights on judas iscariot that i personally really appreciated why don't you you you've got a presentation. Why don't you go ahead? I'll back out a little bit. I mean, I'm I am going to interrupt you. It's my show. No. <laughs> so wait, wait, wait. Before that, do you mind if I? Uh, okay, yeah, let's jump into it. But before that, I want to I want to mention uh, the elephant in the potential elephant in the room of why uh, how backyard professor and myself as a BYU scholar came like how we decided to do this. What's the point? Why am I on uh, with you, Carrie? Um, because I begged you and paid you ten thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I mean, because your audience is going to want to wonder, and probably some people here at BYU, uh, maybe even administrators, or you know, what, what's Trevin doing? So, uh, for me, I've sat in, I've sat in many, many classes. I, I can't even remember how many times I've sat in classes where I was the only non-Jew in the room in Israel, in Baltimore, and in Chicago, and I started noticing something about that community that I wish we had in the Latter-day Saint tradition, whether it's a church or progressive Mormon, post-Mormon, like whatever it is, I wish we had this. And that is, I saw, I saw countless times where we had like ultra liberal, even atheist Jews in the same room with people who belong to the conservative or reform or reconstructionist or like ultra orthodox, like black hat type Jews in the class, same class, all discussing the tradition. There's respect, and they join each other's podcasts and they talk. You know, it's not it's not it's not always like that. I mean, there's some there's some uh, tribalism there too. But I when I came to BYU, I thought, you know, why do why can't we be more like that? You know, why, why do we so, sometimes over here like at BYU? Sometimes I feel like we navel gaze too much. Um, or not necessarily even at BYU, but just in some wards, you have people who are, uh, they'll be mad just the fact that I'm on here because even though, so at certain times, people like Carrie or RFM or Bill Rill, you know, that that uh, Mormon discussions family, not at times, a lot of times critical of the church. And so they're going to say, why are you even on there? And my response is because they are part of my bigger tribe. They're part of my bigger tribe and they have the history and tradition with me. And we're not even talking about okay, gr- or anything like that. Group right? hug, group hug. <laughs> group hug. We're not even talking about that. So I, I thought if somebody wants to talk to me about my book, my research, these topics that, that I care about, then I want to do it. You know, and so I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable. I would be perfectly comfortable to sit down with the most like uber conservative Latter-day Saint. I, I know where they're coming from. And I could sit down with Bill Real, RFM, Carrie. I could sit down with you guys and, uh, and, and find ways to discuss and talk. So I just want to mention that for people to wonder, like, how did this happen? And anybody who is either uh, in my camp or carrying your camp, like whatever that means, dumping assumptions onto why and how these guys are talking, that to me is just noise. And I'm, you know, 
I, I'm, I'm cool with, uh, with everybody. So yeah, I, I want to come on and just chat and talk about this, especially since you're doing a new Testament series and, you know, talk about a subject I love. So I, I, I think people were, might've been curious yeah, yeah, that's well. That's a good. That's a good clarification. Let me also state somewhat of my philosophy too. Um, I have come to appreciate. Now, when I was an apologist, I was. I, I mean, I, I. I hate. I was pretty arrogant, and I was. I was, you know, I was combative, and I. I did not make friends. I ridiculed too much, and I challenged too hard, more out of ignorance than knowledge. And so the spirit of inquiry, as well as the spirit of give and take and share and learning, never really jived with me. And so thanks to Bill Real and, and RFM uh, getting me involved, back involved with making videos, I have discovered that it is so much more enjoyable to have a friendship, and in a friendship, it doesn't matter whether you're atheist, Jew, Christian, Mormon. I don't care what your background is. I don't care if you're male, female. I don't care if you're homosexual or otherwise. It's irrelevant to me who or what you are. What I'm enjoying now is having the discussion and rather than me dictating to someone what they believe or what they're allowed to present so it doesn't make me angry or fearful, let's have your point of view. Let's discuss it in a respectful manner and say, hey, I learned something from you because I'm not here to deconvert any more than I am to convert I'm actually learning more now from people such as yourself and all the other guests that I've had on than I ever did just reading, studying books with the intent of proving them wrong because they didn't think like me and come to the conclusions I come to. Giving that approach up has helped me reach out as a common human being, a common brother with a common brothers and sisters, and let's have a discussion because I inevitably have found, and it's the craziest darn thing, Trevin, everyone I have that I have a discussion with is way smarter than I am at something. And I also have something that I can contribute back and it's fun because I'm becoming friends with so many fantastic people. And I wouldn't trade this for anything. So so I appreciate getting your, your uh, perspective. And this isn't going to be about a, uh, a challenge. Ooh, I'm going to refute you. As soon as we're done on this, I'm going to make a video and I'm going to slash your tires of scholarship. <laughs> I'm going to wipe you out. You. No, I'm learning from you. We're all here to learn and understand. And the only way to do that is have that cross dialogue. And guess what? It enriches not only you and I, not only our audience, but everyone who watches the video too. It really does end up being enriching 
rather than a negative. So, yeah, and I can add that if I, if I add one more thing, uh, another reason sure. why another reason why I wanted to come on is because we're it's this is an interesting time for BYU. We have yeah, I, I'm get, we're getting hit by both sides, and we have we have discussions about this in our faculty meetings. Uh, the administration is talking about this. I, I have discussions with colleagues. We really are. We have on the one side. We have the left, whatever the words we're going to use. Like we have people who are liberal um, outside the church or liberal, secular, whatever it is that use the term BYU professor or BYU scholar, use that title as a slur almost. Like all they have to say is BYU professor. I've done that with some of them. I apologize. (laughs) I'm guilty of that in some ways. Right. And so uh, we have that. We have that. So I wanted to come on and say, okay, if, and every time I see this on Facebook, or I, I comment I'm like, "Look, not all of us uh, are what you think, and it's, it's it's not always black and white. Some of us are trying to do good work, and we're trying to stay faithful to the church and like what they expect here at BYU, and also do good research. So on the one hand, we're getting hit from from that side, and where people are thinking like, oh, especially the religion guys, those like they they have their heads so far in the sand, and like they're they're that's just not the case. There's some, Certainly, there's some people like that, but I, like I want to come on and show that some of us are trying to do that. And on the other side, we're really getting hit by the ultra conservative, like I don't know the right words, like rural Idaho, Utah prepper. Like I don't, I don't want my kid to go there because they are off the rails liberal, and they're teaching critical race theory. And you know, like on the one hand, they, they said the word on. evolution, <gasps> right? All right. On the one hand, we're getting hit. We're getting called we're Bob Jones University. On the other hand, we're, you know, we're not, uh, we're too liberal and we're leading our kids down a, a dark path. And it really is unfortunate because I, I, I just don't, uh, yeah. it's, it's not really fair. You know, I, I went to lunch recently with Greg Matson, who's quick media, CWIC on, you know, on YouTube. And he has, he's got a lot of followers and he, he I, I saw he does a lot of videos where he's just, he'll find out about maybe a professor talking about abortion or LGBT or critical race theory. And he does a huge video and just blasts them. And so I was getting on the comments saying it's more complicated than that. Cause what I was seeing in the comments, people are saying we, we need to do away with the school. All these people are, are just off the rails liberal. And so I'm just trying to like have a dialogue and say, it's not like that. So I went to lunch with Greg. He came to Utah and just uh, last month, about three weeks ago. So I could see where he's coming from. And it turns out that he's not as, raging a raging right winger as I, I i thought he was like talking to him directly he's like look i'm not my commenters uh you know i am i'm trying to shed light on uh problematic people at byu from his perspective he said but i'm not you know i know that, he's like i went to byu i know there's good people there and so you know now i'm here and talking with you so I, that's one of the other reasons why i wanted to come on is to say you know let's not take our you know be right. so ideological and take our side. Let, and- let's not present too many stereotypes yet. There's a range of scholars at BYU. They aren't just one or the other. Right. Yep. Would that be fair to say? That's fair. Yeah. I see. I yeah. see all of them. I see them. Yeah. So, so yeah, just, just so you know, for future reference, and you can send your boss here to watch this. The backyard professor officially finds you to be a great credit to BYU, and I say that in all sincerity. 
your article in this book, edited by Lincoln Blumel, is well written. Your book, A Stranger in Jerusalem, is superbly informative and it's clarifying. That's what we, the public, ask of you, the scholars. And Dr. Hatch, you have delivered so far, so don't change it. Keep publishing and writing and keep coming on to YouTube videos because, quite frankly, this is one of the directions that lots of academia scholarship is beginning to take, and it works because you can talk to your own colleagues in the ivory tower to use the well-worn out image. I get that, yes. But there's a whole lot more John Q. public that can't get access to your research and resources. Come on to our channels and we'll share it with millions. And they will end up giving you credit where credit's due when you show you've got what it takes. I think you're on the way. So this is a great venue venue <laughs> my wife told me dude start pronouncing your words right <laughs> but yeah so so this is what makes it fun for me is having good viable scholars with their actual scholarship not that you're trying to convince everyone nor are you ever going to agree with everyone welcome to academia that's how the real world works and i'm not trying to say that as a you know as a pick against the church, but it wants unity of thought in doctrine and belief. And by now, honestly, I don't know if that's even possible. We're not going to worry about that. What we want is our understanding to increase. And that's a good thing. Excellent. Yeah, appreciate that. So what have you got for us in your New Testament materials? Share my screen. And I'll let you know when your screen comes up or how it comes up. All right, here we go. Thank you, Mosia. There's your comment, but I'm going to take it off because I want to share Dr. Hatch's screen here. Okay, let's get to the screen here. Okay, so yeah, that's, yeah. Oh, oh that's good right there. That'll work. Our okay, criminal so, investigation, is that where you're at? Yep. Okay. Uh, I'll explain. I'll explain this. And I, Carrie, I can't see you. So if you want to interrupt, I can either, I can stop sharing. We can talk and then I can jump back on, like whatever you want. Um, it's fine. You, ju you just start talking. If you can hear me, that's all the interruption you need. So sounds good. good. Okay. So this is, this, this first screen, this is just kind of something, I, this is something I do with my students. I say, you know, we're going to, we're going to pretend here that we are in the third century and the, the Christian church, the Christian community is reopening the case of Judas, Judas's case, and to reevaluate the evidence. You know, so then we're going to walk through it. Um, and I got a timer on this, so it's going to move. I don't know how to turn off the timer. You better uh, talk fast. <laughs> right. Um, so the reason why I talk about this subject is because it's a good case study for what the texts are, for looking at the texts, looking at uh, the Synoptic Gospels versus John and, and you know, all those different texts and what they're doing, what the motives are and the implications. So I do this with my class. I, I talk about this and it's one of my favorite discussions because uh, it allows us to learn about, to, to, to consider the topic of messianism, like messianic expectations, 
the text, the nature of scripture, all that kind of stuff. The, his, the historical Jesus is fascinating. So let's just dive in. I don't know how long this will take. It shouldn't take too long, maybe half hour or so. But uh, let's just walk through this, the evidence. And, and then at the end, I'll show you my conclusion and why, you know, what I think Judas is up to. So Excellent. first we have the betrayal. And I put this word up here because the, we keep using the word betray, but the word does not mean betray. You can see up here, it's uh, for those getting this audio or visual, it's paradokin, which means to hand over or deliver, but it does not mean to betray. So we already start from the word that's being used in the text. Now, here is William Clausen, scholar. I think he's at Cam uh, was at Cambridge. Here's, uh, here's what he says, and he gives an example of, of some of my own findings. He says, not one ancient classical Greek text has surfaced in which this verb, paradokin, in, in its various forms, means betray or has the connotation of treachery. Josephus, the most prolific historian of the first century, uses this word 293 times, but not once can one legitimately translate it, employing the word betray. There is no linguistic basis in classical Greek, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, in Josephus or patristic sources for a translation of betray to describe what uh, Judas did. So there, already there's there's different words that would mean something where somebody did that was a treacherous betrayal, you know, against a close person or family member. Okay, so that's that's number one. He's right out of the gates, starting with that word. Okay, so then we go to the Last Supper, and we have some differences in the text. We've got Matthew, or sorry, Mark mentions that there was one person in the room who would hand over Jesus to the, to the authorities. And it's, in Mark, it scandalizes the apostles. They're like, who's going to be it? You know, they're wondering which one. Okay, then we get to Matthew, and in the gospel, in the author of Matthew, it's Judas who wonders whether it would be him. He's the one to do this. Okay, so the problem is we have all of our assumptions from what we've learned for decades and in the movies. We're already, like when we read it, we just dump all the assumptions saying, okay, Judas is already, he's like a sleazeball and Jesus wants him to do it. But if we remove all that, here's the data that we have. Everyone's wondering if they're going to be the one to do it. Okay, so then we're still in the last supper and we've got in john different account in a different time for different purposes jesus encourages judas to do quickly what you're going to do so it still doesn't mean what we think it means yet in terms of just the data that judas um is crazy in fact this this painting here you can see in addition i think there's a back you can see some of these okay this is interesting I'm glad i went back see how judas that red-haired guy on the my right-hand side of the screen. Right. I don't know who the author is, but it's probably an author who doesn't like, you know, someone who looks like that, a redhead or, you know, I don't know, somebody from Scotland or something. I don't know. You know what I mean? So it's uh, whatever that, is, whoever wrote this, who portrayed Judas looking like that, different than the apostles, to him, that was a, like, it was a dig. Okay. Also look at this, look how hairy and look at his eyes. Yeah. That's the, that, you know, that's the assumption. This guy's uh, worst you can get. Okay. So when Judas exits the room in John, the other disciples assume, they don't assume that there's some problem. They, they just assume that he's leaving to get food or to give to the poor. So thus far, like so far in the data, we have no evidence that there was hostility between Jesus and Judas or between Judas and the other apostles. Hey, they've been with each other for, 
I don't know how many how many years. People think people typically say that the Jesus ministry lasted three years, but that's not that's in the synoptics. And it, sorry, that's in that's in John, and that's not even in it's not even three years. He went to Jerusalem at the beginning, in the middle, and end of his ministry. Okay, well, that's two years. Uh, in the synoptics, it's like one year. Okay, so we're we're dealing with one or two years of these people being together all the time, and they're not picking up if if he is as bad and evil as we want to say, as his tradition has, you know, has put on him. Like there's no, there's no evidence of that, at least so far. Okay. okay. Now we get to Judas's motives. And this is where it starts to say, okay, as a historian, as a Jesus studies scholar, like if, if it's somebody's coming to the data and they want to look at Jesus's deeds or sayings and saying, what did he really do and say? And how do we reconstruct the history and how to reconstruct historical Jesus? This is a very good example. Okay, so the Gospels are conflicted. Here's two, two conclusions by interpreters. So Jesus commanded Judas to hand him over as part of a divinely ordained plan. This is a later Christian interpreters. Okay, or Judas was greedy and evil, and therefore he betrayed Jesus. So um, both of those are problematic to me. Okay, and we'll talk about those. But Matthew has him. They're getting this from Matthew. He's greedy. And his greed compelled Judas to betray Jesus. Luke and John, however, say that he was possessed by a satanic influence. These authors are writing 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus died. And so um, they probably don't know what happened to Judas. As we go through, you'll see this. And so they're trying to explain whatever happened to that Judas guy and why did he do it? And this, you know, they're trying to, they're just, they're, this is their explanation. It's like, oh, he's greedy or he's possessed by Satanic influence. Okay, Mark, the earliest gospel, there's no motivation for why Judas handed Jesus over to authorities. In fact, in Mark, Judas comes out pretty well. Judas comes out better in Mark than I think the original apostles, the other the other apostles. I mean, Mark takes it to him pretty good. And then Matthew uh, takes it to Peter pretty good. He doesn't like Peter. That's a different discussion we'll have at a different time. But Judas actually fares pretty well in Mark. Okay, so you can see the differences. Okay, so let's kind of go through this. Uh, I've got my words up on the screen, but this is just from my students. Basically, the issue is if, if Judas was demonic and evil and greedy and was e easily compromised, then why would he so quickly slip into a depression or like this, as I say here, repentance state and want to return the money? And then kill himself, according to Matthew, kill himself after Jesus' conviction. Like why the immediate remorse? Now, if there's any like psychologists or any kind of therapists, they can, I can look through this and... and Pick up, uh, pick up some problems with the standard interpretation. Okay, why would Jesus command on the, the the other the other explanation is why would Jesus command Judas to hand him over in order to accomplish something that his, he was divinely ordained to do? Right, something like Abraham, command Abraham to do this according to tradition, and because Abraham whatever Abraham ended up doing, it exalted him, it moved him from from you know from one state to a, a more exalted state. Right. From Avram or Avram to Abraham. That's not what happened to Judas. This this resulted in Judas disgraced death and his, his, his disgraced his, his death and his disgraced legacy. Okay, So why would why would G, uh, Jesus do this? That's actually a really interesting point. I had never thought of before. Very cool. Yeah. And when I was going through the text, I'm just I'm trying to piece this together and saying what's really going on here. Again, you'll get my my conclusion at the end, but uh, yeah. these are the things that I'm thinking about. Does this make sense? Okay. 
In John, and my students don't like this, in John, Jesus knew from the beginning that Jesus that uh, Judas would betray him. And so you got the text right here. It says, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He was speaking of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, um, though one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The reason why my students, at least last time I taught this class, I haven't gotten, I'm teaching this semester, I haven't got to this yet. The reason why they don't like it is because it looks like Jesus is being, like he's just stringing Judas along. He's just stringing him along uh, in sort of like an entrapment sort of situation where he's putting him in positions where he know he, he knows that Judas will fail. Okay, the implications of that, uh, for all kinds of different Christians, that's that doesn't work. It doesn't work for my students. It doesn't work for me. Many of you probably doesn't work for like to, to assume that Judas, that Jesus is going to do that so that why can't he just hand himself over? Why does he have to destroy someone's life, destroy someone's legacy? Because he knew that he would he would do he would betray him. Okay? That's all, that doesn't make sense either to me. OK. More things to consider. In Matthew, Judas delivered Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. This is about 120 days wages. I just did a little bit of math. If you're, you know, these guys are fishermen, you know, lower middle class, you know, they, they have essentially what they need. They're not impoverished. So let's say 40,000 annually, according to, you know, to, to our standards, and then betraying him for 120 days wages, about $13,000. Okay. So yeah, he would have to like be psychotic or he had to be absolutely greedy. You'd have to have some mental, you'd have to have some condition to where he's going to take his teacher, his master, sell him off. For the low price of a slave, um, you know, for thirteen thousand. Yeah, I like how you put that in today's equivalency because that really does present serious problems for a greedy Judas. Now that is from Matthew, though. But yeah, that's interesting. Matthew, yeah. yeah. And there's a, there's a few other things that we're, we have to keep in mind, but uh, as we go through this, but. But here, that even that bottle, you know, that bottle of ointment that it, that, that woman uses on the Mount of Olives, where she pours it on his feet, you know, the, um, that's more than double the price of a slave. And so you can oh, really wow. see that Judas is not turning this guy over, Jesus over, for very much. I mean, why doesn't he negotiate a higher, you know, anyway, this is one, another reason why I'm not uh, sold on it. So on, on these common explanations, either from interpreters or from the Gospels. Okay. Here, when Jesus was convicted and killed, Judas realized he made a mistake. And I say here, an honest mistake. And he had misunderstood what Jesus the Messiah was supposed to accomplish. So his example is, like in Matthew, when he goes to, he hands over Jesus to Pilate. Judas has repented, immediately returns the money. And then he says this. He says, I have sinned by handing over innocent blood. The word there doesn't mean sin as in like, I've sinned against God. The word is hamartano. And it means, I think I've got it here. Yeah, it means to miss the mark or to be mistaken. Oh, I love, I love how you've analyzed the meaning of the word because the word sinned, of course, you immediately think, oh, crap, now i got to go talk to my bishop. Right, right. <laughs> you know, a sin. But that's not what this is implying. Oh, I love how you do this. This is one of the things I love about your book. You just, you do this throughout your book. And gosh darn it, I love this kind of stuff. So thank you for being the way you are. Yeah, this yeah. is wonderful. And a problem. And it, it just uh, it makes us think that because somebody could go to the text and be like, well, Judas says right here, or at least the text, that he sinned. 
So why are you trying to complicate this? You're like, why, why are you trying to you know, be an ac academic and complicated? Well, it's complicated because, you know, at least in the tradition that Ma the author of Matthew's getting, he's just mistaken. Yeah, well, it's complicated because we keep trying to read our modern ideas into it as well. And so we're not getting the full ramification. I don't see you as making this complicated. I see you as taking a step-by-step -step approach of each one of the different options. Was he greedy? Well, let's look at the state of the material and the evidence, including in the original language, and see if greed makes sense. You make $44,000 annual, and then you turn around and betray a guy for just thirteen. dollars that is seriously problematic. You then turn around and speedily repent, thinking you have innocent blood. That, yeah, I love how you've broken this down, Trevin. Keep going, keep going. I'm just, yeah, this is yeah. awesome. Okay, let's move forward a little bit. Um, yeah. Okay, so now we've got what Judas did. We've got his motives. They don't agree. So if we're a historian, so again, we're, we're thinking we're third century Christian church and we're trying to, uh, we're trying to piece this together and come to a conclusion, you know, maybe at some sort of creed, some sort of creedal conclusion on Judas. We've already got problems. Like, are we going to side with one author of one gospel or the other author to decide on, on Judas? So the other thing is, what about his fate? Not just what he did as Moses, but what about his, his fate? Now, here's, um, okay, here's 1 Corinthians. I, for, I actually forgot about this uh, uh, slide. If you remember, Paul refers to the night that Jesus was handed over. This is in 1 Corinthians 11. And he said, and he used the word Herodokin, the same word, handed over. But he says that the resurrected Jesus met with the 12 later in this. Oh, wouldn't he say the interesting detail? Okay. Yeah. And some people say, yeah, but that's just sort of like, we use that today, the 12. You know, let's say that uh, a couple of apostles died or whatever, and there's only 10, and you got several months till you call new ones. And they would still refer to them as 12. Okay, that's just kind of a, I guess it's possible, but I'm not sure you can, at this time, Paul's state, thinking of this as, a, as the way we think about a quorum and a group and the sort of uh, a title of the 12 referring to this quorum. Yeah, it's, not, it's, not, it's possible that he's just, he's assuming, he doesn't mention Judas, and he's just assuming, like he calls him the 12. Judas is there, right? So it's yeah. possible that he didn't, nothing happened to him. Okay, hey, Mark, hey, hey, hang on, hang on real quick. I just want to say something to Radio Free Mormon. Um, we are going to have a question and answer session here in just a few minutes. Uh, we're going to let uh, Dr. Hatch finish his presentation. So keep your question in mind, Radio Free Mormon. That's a great question. And um, everybody who has a question, once we get to the question and answer, Type it all in capitals. It's easier for me to see and read. But yeah, keep that in mind. Um, we we will get to that Radio Free Mormon. So okay, keep going, Doctor Hatch. Okay. okay, so Mark doesn't mention Judas again after Jesus's arrest. So so he's not talking about what happened to Judas. We got Luke and John saying nothing of what happened to Judas after Jesus's crucifixion. So now you got three Gospels writing the story. They don't say anything, he, and. So really, we only have the M tradition, meaning the material that only ended up in the Gospel of Matthew is Judas commits suicide. So we've got a problem. It's just in one Gospel. We also have oh, the Acts. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's important. Yeah, that's, that's, important. Math, that's Matthew's position, but that doesn't mean it's historical. 
that that doesn't mean that's how it happened. That's how I should word that. Yeah, interesting. Okay, very good. Acts, but in also in Acts we have Judas dying after taking a fall. I mean, he stumbled in his, his yeah. That contradiction is always brought out by atheists. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a contradiction. The Bible can't be true. Judas died two different ways. That's interesting. And so what what a what apologists will do or like conservative Christians they'll say they'll just combine them and say oh yeah we've all heard it we've all like he hung himself and the rope broke he fell and his bowels gushed out but when you do that kind of thing you risk making a new gospel not there's not one gospel that said that so if you're going to combine them gospels that were written at different times different places with different audiences in mind you're creating your own gospel and you have to I tell my students you have to be aware that you're doing that. Yeah, James Tabor actually talks about the problem of trying to harmonize the stories. You need each one as their own as their own piece. Otherwise, you lose bits and pieces. So this is important. And I'll come back to this. Uh, there's an explanation for Acts and the difference there. So, so what else we got? Oh, we have Papias or Papias, however you want to say in English, early second century theologian. He said that a chariot hit and killed Judas. So that's different. And then you have the Gospel of Judas, a second or third century, um, the apostles persecuted and, if I remember, and stoned Judas. So basically what we have is within the first hundred or so years, hundred to two hundred years, we, there's still, we don't have a unified uh, position in the Christian community of what happened to Judas. Okay, so the problem now with his, with his death. Okay. So the credibility of the witnesses, I'm not I'm not a lawyer, you know, RFM or somebody else. Like I'm just kind of being having fun with this. But here's oh sure, absolutely. Here, here's, yeah. here's the witnesses. This so is great. In both the Last Supper and Gethsemane episodes, Matthew, Matthew paints Judas as the worst kind of betrayer. And how does he do this? What he does is that he Judas calls Jesus rabbi during the Last Supper, and then again in Gethsemane. Okay, so why is this a problem? Because if you remember in the Gospel of Matthew later in, in 23, chapter 23, Jesus tells the people that, um, he says, to have the people call him rabbi, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you were all students. So in that gospel, Jesus doesn't like that title. You shouldn't call him that. And it's precisely Judas in the same gospel who calls Jesus rabbi twice. Okay, So he's, he's trying to make Judas look like, in every, every angle, look like the worst possible betrayer. Okay. Let's see. Um, explained all that. Okay. Well, this is interesting. Matthew also links Judas with Judah. These are the same name. Judah and Judas, the same name. Hebrew, Greek, it's, they're both Judah. This is the Joseph of Egypt story. Okay. So you have all of Joseph's brothers reject him except for Judah, suggest selling him for 20 pieces of silver in order to make a profit. And it's actually some manuscripts have 30 pieces of silver. And we see 30 pieces of silver show up in other texts as well. Okay, hmm. for, so Genesis 37 is for a prophet. So you also have Jesus' disciples deserted him, deserted him, but only Judas, again, Judah, only Judah is willing to sell him for profit, states those very words. You, uh, so only basically only two people in all of Jewish and Christian scripture are willing to sell their own brother or teacher into slavery to foreigners are both for, for a prophet are both named Judah. Okay, so. In other words, and I do this all throughout my book in different ways, I'm suggesting here the implications that Matthew has the Hebrew Bible open, so to speak. Maybe not so to speak. He has 
the text there. He has it open as he's trying to write and tell the Jesus story. He needs all of these passages, a lot of these passages to refer back to. Yeah. He needs his he needs his audience to, to constantly put to see the King David or Moses or Joseph of Egypt or the prophet Elisha. He needs to see that. Yeah. Jesus story. It's yeah, everything. Very it's everything. interesting. Okay. So. Okay. I already talked about that. Okay. Here. Now this is very telling to me. This is why I'm become skeptical that this is a 100% historical. And we've already discussed the problems between the texts, but let's just look in Matthew. Okay. You have David's advisor, Ahithophel. And again, Matthew's trying to alter it from the genealogy all the way through. Matthew's trying to show that David is, that Jesus is like David and Jesus is the son of David. So Ahithophel joins in a conspiracy against David. If you remember, uh, Absalom is trying to, to overthrow David and take the throne. David flees. He overcomes it, and the conspiracy fails. When it fails, Ahithophel, he says he hangs himself, and he dies, just like Judas. The Greek words are the same. I might have. Yeah, the only two suicide hangings all, all in, in Hebrew Bible, New Testament. And, oh, okay, here it is, the Greek. It's the exact same words if we take the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, and um, this passage. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. There's the influence right there, isn't it? Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well done. Well done. Oneself. Okay. Then, um, this is very interesting. The author of John. This is not Matthew. This is John, though. So he's doing some of this. He quotes Psalm 41, putting words into David's mouth regarding Ahithophel. So this is that Psalm 41 does this. Even my bosom friend in whom I trusted, who ate of my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Notice in John 13, Jesus says the same thing. The one who ate my bread was has lifted his heel against me. He's also brought in Hebrew Bible all the time. That's what they're trying to do. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's some there's some uh there's some creative parallels being created here, isn't there? Or, or or at least some uh, some directives to guide what they're thinking back to the Old Testament Hebrew themes. Yeah. Yep. Okay, let's continue. So now in the book of Acts, it's the only other text that mentions the death. You have Judah falls. Judas falls and his, bus, uh, his bowels gush out. This is also David. Another one of his generals was uh, Amasai or Massa, or however you want to say it. He also joins uh, this conspiracy, and it doesn't work. So, sorry, I'll go back. It doesn't work. Conspiracy fails, and so Yoav, another, yet another general, approaches uh, Amasa, and he takes him by his face, by his beard. He kisses him, just like Judah kisses Jesus. He says, my brother, just like Judah says, my master. And then Yoav takes a dagger and stabs Amasa, and it says his bowels, as you can see here, Sorry, his bowels gushed out on the ground. Okay. So right here, as you can see, these two episodes, the Amasa Yoav episode and the Judas material in Gospels and Acts, have all of these same elements. There's a conspiracy, betrayal. It also says that Yoav wore a soldier's garment when he approached Amasa. There's a friendly verbal greeting, a kiss, a sword, and death as bowels gushed out. It's not a perfect story because throughout the Gospels, it's kind of scattered. Right. But you can see how they're drawing on it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's good. Well done. Yeah. So this explains why there's a contradiction in it too. Each one of them is using a different source. Right. 
And so for my class, I just did just to kind of continue this sort of hypothetical, the verdict, you know, is Judas uh, bribery, is conspiracy. I don't even know if I'm using these words right, you know, uh, in the Gospels. Are they lying under oath? <laughs> are they just defamation of character? Written, you know, written defamation, the defamation is called libel. <laughs> so I, I use this to talk about my, you know, to talk to the class. So like, okay, what's going on here with these texts? And, you know, if we're trying to, to reopen this case, what are we thinking? But, so that's what this slide's about. Now, my argument is, so what do we, what's Judas doing if we're going to look at this historically? And that is, there, there's some of this material that'll help us, I think. I'm going fast. Okay, so Peter, if you remember, when Jesus asked, who am I? What are people saying about me? He says, oh, you're the Messiah. And then in that same, at Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I have to die. Sorry, this is annoying. I have to just right. Uh, Peter says, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. So in other words, Peter's been with him the whole time. And he's still like a Messiah is not supposed to die. A Messiah is supposed to be a Davidic king who's going to free Israel. Okay. You have these two men on the road to Emmaus, back to Emmaus after Jesus dies. He comes to them in disguise. He says, why are you sad? And they said, well, where, where have you been? Don't you know that our prophet died? And then they said, we had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel, be that Messiah to come save Israel. And the first question that is asked to Jesus when he is resurrected, it's this in Acts 1-6. Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? So they're not saying, you know, they're not saying, wow, how did you're here? How did this happen? Like the very first question, is this now the time that you're going to overthrow Rome and restore uh, Israel? That's their whole, that's their entire worldview. Fascinating. Okay. Yeah. And we also get Paul. He admits that in 1 Corinthians that the crucifixion of Jesus for Jews was a scandalon in, in Greek. It's a stumbling block to Jews. Like he knows that. So given all this, and then in my book, I detail a massive chapter of the background in Josephus and other messiahs who are trying to take over royal armories and be a king and, and they're, how they're killed and Pilate's chasing them. Like, this is the messianic worldview that they have. And it is, uh, by the time Jesus is born and comes into this world, into the Herodian uh, Roman world that they're in, messian messianic expectations have reached a fever pitch. Mm -hmm. So the reason why I put this up here is to, to, uh, to, to then insert Judas. If Judas believed the same thing as all of these people, unless he was, like, absolutely crazy and he had some, like, crazy mental health, issues that caused him to do this aside from that if he's just like the other apostles then he probably not probably he believed that jesus was the messiah and therefore he can't lose so what's fine let's let's turn him in and to get this thing going and jesus is going to light him up i think i say that in my book he's going to light him up it's this is the, this oh, is the oh, wait, game. wait you know, so judas is not betraying jesus in his own mind from as an evil act am i reading you right here judas is not betraying jesus in his own mind as an evil act he is he is saying okay you're the you're the messiah and you're gonna kick some butt here let's do this let's get going yes yeah, the only it's the only you're saying his motive is not evil very right. interesting that's right and obviously we don't know people say yeah you can't possibly know that well of course we don't know that. We can't. This well, is what yeah. does. You can't go right. into his mind, but it's the only thing that makes sense. It's the, it doesn't make sense to say he's got some demon that made him do this. And even if it did, like, why are we, why are we like slandering his name? You know, 
Um, if he's greedy, nothing makes sense except for like he clearly, if something happened to him, okay, either nothing happened to him and he was just kind of, he stayed there and he was there with Jesus' resurrection days and all. Either that happened or something did happen to him. And these authors don't know what happened to him. And so they're like, okay, whatever happened to that guy? You know, and then they put all their. Yeah, because they are writing later. That was one of your wonderful clarifying points. Yeah. These gospels are being written later. They may not really know. That's why the contradictions are occurring. This doesn't prove Jesus didn't exist, like mythicists would say, or that Judas is an invention. It just means that from a 40 year later time period, we can't know, but the way you look in the clues here is really instructive. In your article here, in this book, you describe so well the different types of messiahs that Josephus was talking about, and yeah. every one of them were revolutionary. Now, from what I'm getting from your presentation here is, so the gospel writers also appear to me to be expecting that revolutionary. And then all of a sudden, oh, Jesus is crucified. But that didn't, it, it was a stumbling block and all, but that didn't do away with the fact that they still were hoping, okay, now are you going to go kick butt? <laughs> right. Isn't yeah, that fascinating? Yeah. Yeah. Their explanation. So I use, yeah, and so I use this to say that when we're interpreting scripture, me studying, being trained to read New Testament by Jews and to, to approach that, you know, we, there, and there's all, we, we could go out for hours about how this was used by early Christians, medieval Christians, modern uh, Christians to demonize Jews. And Judas, and it doesn't help that Judas, Judas's name as Judah, it means Jew. It's like, that's what, <laughs> of all the apostles it just so happened to the one guy named jew jew yeah um and so we need to take a you know i try to tell my students let's take a compassionate and careful view and because if you if you want to take if you want to say let's deal with this historically you have to take you can't just take all the gospels and throw them together it doesn't make sense you have to take either matthew and you have to explain it or you, and you have to also have to know the papias and the gospel the author of the gospel of judas they also don't know what's going on so in terms of the scholarship um, we have to be aware of that. And so for me, I'm backing away and saying, okay, we can't say for sure. Like even in the book, in the introduction, in the conclusion of that section, I say, here's what we know in terms of the scholar. Here's what we know about what happened. There's some apostle who was believed to have delivered Jesus. We don't know why, and we don't know what happened to him after. Like that, we can't, we can't know that. That's it. it Full stop right there. Yeah. The so for me, I'm saying if that happened, if there's one of his apostles that turned him in, or somehow is the liaison of this uh, of how this worked. I'm saying he believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Otherwise, like otherwise, why is the apostle? If everybody else is believing, okay, here's even in, even non-apostles believe that Jesus is the Messiah. A lot of them, like in John six, it says that, that uh, there's a whole group of people that took Jesus by force and wanted him to make him their king. And so everybody's following these other messiahs and they're thinking, and a lot of people following John the Baptist, which made Herod Antipas uh, worried. And so he got killed. So why would there be this strange guy, Judas, like totally like different than everybody else, not expecting anything, wanted some measly, you know, a little bit of money. I'm, I'm saying he probably thought he was the messiah, which means he can't lose. Interesting. 
that that's fantastic. I love how you've how you've broken that down and looked into some details, and you've asked some really good searching questions of various approaches. Was it greed? Well, was it was it hate and evil? Uh, because Judas has taken it in the teeth for quite a few centuries now of being the real bad guy. And, and I did tell you this before we started. Uh, one of my very favorite statements, you have now surpassed this statement with your wonderful research, but this statement from Joseph Campbell about Judas just completely changed my whole mind about everything when he said, don't consider Judas the bad guy. He is the midwife of our salvation. That, that's one of those comments that you sit back and you go, oh my gosh, that is an actual valid way to approach this. I never looked at him as that important. Your approach also says that with the with the idea that Judas did not have a malicious intent he was the, he could have been thinking yeah yeah you're you're the tough guy you're the one that's going to call the angels down and absolutely kick these guys butt let's do this let's get this going here's your bread let's go Right. Yeah, and if something did happen I think to him, that is so fascinating because this gospel was written later we are imputing a motive that they were ignorant of, so we're the ones misreading the text, potentially, in a very right. bad way. Yeah, and one, and one thing, and we could talk about this uh, if we do other episodes and, and do it on my YouTube channel and elsewhere. Sure. And that is, in chapter six is where I deal with Judas, the first half of that chapter for 10, 15 pages, I talk about the Christ killer accusation. To yes. prepare the reader for the whole second half of the book. Oh, that was and horrifying. You, and you, you have Christians using yeah. the Judas material every single Passover and or Easter. Every single year there's uh, persecutions that rise and they're, they're reading these passages. You know, and they're saying like even yeah. <laughs> Christians are saying even so the Jews rejecting him, Pharisees rejecting him, even Jesus' own apostle who's a Jew and his, his name's Judah did the same thing. I, I, so you got to be very careful not to, to not to perpetuate sloppy interpretations. And I really do this with, I really hit this hard with Pharisees. Um, that's one of my main areas of research Pharisees. Oh, oh I then, can't, I, I cannot wait to uh, do another session with you here coming up on the, on the Pharisees. Uh, that's where you got me. That that's where I realized uh, Dr. Hatch is the real McCoy. This is superb material. Uh, I can't wait to do that, that, uh, session with you now is that pretty much what you wanted to cover on judas should we do some questions and answers yeah, we're good. should we yeah. do some q a okay radio free mormon retype your question that was a good question if you would put it in caps otherwise i'm going to have to go back and look at it everybody who asks questions write them in caps and we will ask dr hatch uh the questions it was involving the JST, so that's why it caught my eye. I thought, wow, that's a great idea. You want me to go back and look for it, RFM? Radio Free Mormon is still here, isn't it? Yeah, you're still here. You just posted. Come on, ask the question, my good brother. <laughs> okay, you guys, let's get the questions going. You have a chance to act.
ask a New Testament scholar some great questions on the New Testament or Judas or whatever. You can't tell me you're not curious about something about the New Testament. Here we go. Doug Vincent says, what does the gospel of Judah say his motives were? Ooh. Oh, that's you mean, interesting. You, you mean, yeah. Uh, I don't actually remember. It's been about three years, and I'm not even sure if it covers uh, if it covers it. But um, I'll actually jot it down and throw it in the comment section when you get, when you post this video. Okay. So it is. You, you say you're looking for it, you, you'll find it, or you'll we'll do it? I'll, 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 okay, okay. Okay, Mosia, does it boil down to anti-Semiticism, doctor? You mean how Judas is portrayed? Yeah, I suspect um, so. That's a, It's complicated because um, I don't know if we can say anti-Semitism or even anti-Judaism, but it, uh, it could be. Because these Gospels are written, it's really, really messy, and I deal with this in several chapters of, and scholars are still debating what the audience of these gospels are. Is there a community or is it, there's a, now the latest is that it's proposed that these are uh, elite scribal groups. And so Matthew is, these are Jewish writers. These are Jewish writers. And so I don't know mm -hmm. if, uh, if we can say there, it's just, it just boils down to anti-Semitism. There's a lot, by the time these gospels are being written, this is after the Jewish Roman war. And this is also at a time when the Jewish community, Jewish leaders, are trying to redefine Judaism after the temple and those on the fringes like the Jesus movement get left out. And so when they write this text, sure. yes, there is, there is some like anti-Judaism or anti-Judean. Like when they say Jews in, in John, it might be, you know, the Greek word is uh, which is uh, Judeans. So we're still wrestling with the text of what exactly each author means when they use that Greek word. Does it mean Jews in general? Does it mean Judeans? So it's really messy, and we don't know if Judas is strictly like an anti-Semitic thing because these people are still writing to Jews in part, and so I'm hesitant to say it just it only boils down to that. Yeah, here's RFM's question: The Joseph Smith translation has two death accounts of Judas. Let's keep him in there. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So is that is that really an inspired Joseph Smith translation? translation <laughs> why yeah. yeah we'll have to go look yeah i'm assuming that he doesn't combine them like he leaves them the two death tradition in acts i i think i think so yeah i'm not sure either it's been a long time since i've right. looked at the jst so inspired yeah that's uh uh that's these are the one these are the questions that my students or some people ask about the JST that really starts to make things complicated because we don't even know what it is. We don't know what the JST is. Like even Latter-day Saints who believe it, it's scripture and like what kind of scripture? How high what's his revelatory status? What's Joseph yeah. doing? Don't even know what he, don't even know what he's doing. He doesn't say yeah. exactly what he's doing. So the fact that he left him in there, <clears throat> and actually, by the way, a lot of people in uh when I talk about this during Holy Week, I'll post on Judas. Some people will criticize. They'll say the fact that Joseph Smith didn't correct it means that the original narrative is right. And that gets into a whole problem by assuming that just because Joseph didn't correct it or he changes something, assumes that we can take it to the bank, like the problem is solved. We just can't do that. It, it's too complicated just to, just to assume that just because 
Joseph left it alone or didn't touch it, it, it solves it and it solves the problem. It doesn't solve it. Well, well, we could do some research on that and present another uh, presentation as far as that goes. That would be right. very interesting. Great question, Radio Free Mormon. Thanks for asking it. Uh, Patrick Kelly, was Judas just the fall guy? He could have been. Yeah, he could have been. If there's a guy named Judas and uh, they didn't like him, like something happened and he left, whatever the case is, it could be that they just threw him under the bus and like, yeah, but it was our guy who controlled the purse. I remember he, he's the one that controlled the purse. Uh, he's the one that did it. And we're all still here in the fifties and sixties. He's not here, you know, or like, you know, in the forties, fifties, we're all still here. He's not here. He could have been the fall guy. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Forden. Forden Gamzee is the Judas character partially based on Judas of Galilee or another of the failed messiahs. Now, oh, Judas that's Galilee, that's one of the messiahs that uh, Josephus talks about, isn't it? Yeah, that's interesting. So uh, yeah. I'm, I, I doubt it, but yeah, for those who don't know, the Judas of Galilee, this is, uh, uh, this is what I'm thinking of. He's, it's his 4 BC, where after Herod died, he, he builds up, he gets a big army and he's going to take over. He, he revolts against uh the Herodian family in Rome, they catch him. The Roman governor Varus, the general Varus, catches him, kills him, and kills 2,000 of his, you know, his guerrilla soldiers. And they line the street, the road, the highway that goes from Sepphoris in the lower Galilee to the Sea of Galilee. So it's 20 miles or so, 2,000 crucified men on that road. So, what a message. And that's right. <laughs> Yeah, that's right at the time that Jesus is born, right? Right in that area. He's born in, in Lower Galilee. He probably, and he, he knows about these traditions. People, you know, his parents taught it, like right here as you're walking through. Because you had to take that road to go into Capernaum and that area. And he certainly knew of that. So in terms of the gospel writers, if they wanted to use Judas of Galilee, um, uh, my gut reaction is no. It's a different guy, different circumstance. But um it's interesting that this this guy knows this. It's interesting. It's a, yeah. you, have a, you have a smart audience. Elder Igloo, uh, apparently you've tried to ask a question. You're asking if it got filtered. I don't see that it's filtered. Could you re-ask it and put it all in caps for us, please? It's much easier for me to catch that it's a question. I don't care if everybody else thinks you're yelling. I know you're not. I need the caps, <laughs> if you would, please. That's a dumb comment anyway, that dumb idea. Well, why are you yelling at me? I'm not, I'm tired. Anyway, that's my, yeah, that's my particular beef. Okay. Yeah, and actually, that's a good point. In a way, Patrick Kelly, he sounds like he's trying to fit a square into a round hole right now. Uh, and, and in some respects, that's probably true because we can't know for sure. We really can't. So it, there is guesswork involved here, even with uh, inspiration. Uh, that's just the way. Welcome to the study of the Bible. As far as I, that I, would goes. Just, I would just respond. I would say, you know, if one of my students said that, I'm like, oh, it's, not, it's unlikely. You seem like you're, you're cramming something. I'm just taking the different accounts and saying um, we have to pull back and deconstruct it. You can't just go like full hog, combine everything, make it. You know, he's killing himself and then the rope breaks. Or like he really is controlled by a demon. If we take those two gospels, and then this over, I, I'm I'm pulling away and saying, as a, as a matter of if history, reconstructing it, like it's all a mess. 
And so my, what I'm trying to, to reconstruct and say, okay, what makes sense? What makes sense to me is the messianic, because I know I studied, I've researched this a lot and published on messianic expectations in the Dead Sea Scrolls, messianic expectations in Josephus. That's the one that makes sense to me. So it could be uh, uh, me you know, cramming, uh, you know, a peg, a square peg into a round hole, but uh, I think I'm pretty safe. To come up with these, yeah. these uh, RFM just posted Joseph harmonized the death accounts, so okay. he did. Okay. He did, he didn't approach it as a historian. <laughs> so okay, so in that in that aspect, he's taking the traditional Christian um, trope. Yeah, that, that's in there. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. Okay, let's see what's the next. Yeah, so many messiahs. That's a good point too, Mosia. Uh, Mosia says so many messiahs. Yeah, how many did you count? You mentioned wasn't there like a dozen of them that Josephus was talking about? Just from Herod to the destruction of Jerusalem, there were like a dozen of them at that point, weren't there? Yeah, about a dozen. Frame? About a dozen. It's, just it's a very years. active hotbed here. Oh, Judas' last name was Rothschilds. No, it's Vanderbilt. No, it's Morgan. Okay, hold on. I'm scrolling through. What is in your wallet? Oh, yeah. Judas was asked one too many times. Okay, let's see. I'm trying to find. You're making it too tough on me, you guys. Put them in. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Okay, Amam, was the render unto Caesar line the straw that broke the tapers back for our anti-hero Judas? <laughs> <laughs> Always a smart aleck. Oh, Amam, you're something else. I love you, man. You're a hoot. All right, <laughs> let's see. <laughs> uh, Lael is asking, did you see my last question? No, I did not. Um, hold on, I'm scrolling. Let me check and see. In the meantime, uh, let's see. Let, oh boy, it's way down there. All the rest of you guys, quit typing for a minute. Let the guys writing questions type their questions. Otherwise, uh, you're going to see me here scrolling like crazy and not finding anything. Okay, I'm going to go back down here to the questions. Hey, you're welcome, Mom, Mom. Absolutely. Okay, let's see. I didn't, Lael. Type your question again. I, I can't find it. Looks like Radio Free Mormon is playing bingo. <laughs> well, that's what you said, Radio Free Mormon. Okay. Uh, oh, this is an interesting comment from my good friend T.O., whom I have had on the show a few times. I'll just post this as a comment for you, Dr. Hatch. The betrayal is represented by an embrace. The setting is the holy place. The veil is implied, and the penalty is personified thereafter. That's kind of an inch. T.O. has some interesting ways to look at some of this stuff. That, that's kind of fun. Thanks, sir. Thanks for yeah. typing that, T.O. That's fun. Okay, let's see. It looks like I have new comments. Uh, do, 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 do. I don't see it, Lael. I apologize. I'm trying to see it. Hopefully it was a good one. All right. Any more questions, you guys? We're going to, uh, what I want to do, you mentioned, uh, Dr. Hatch, you mentioned 
your information on on the the Pharisees. And now there we do know, uh, you know, someone said, well, you're trying to pit it. Oh, never mind. I'll I'll put this question up. Yeah, my, my point was going to be there are so many different groups that it's inevitable that we're going to get confused and mixed up on which groups are what, what are they like, etc. And I thought one of the best parts of your books was on the Pharisees. So I'm just going to give you a plug for when we get back together to talk about the Pharisees. I will be advertising it as such because that was truly enlightening in my opinion. So my, my, my basic argument is that Jesus was a Pharisee or at least came out of the Pharisaic tradition. And, uh, and I analyze all 98 or 97 episodes where Pharisees appear. And uh, that's also important for Christian Jewish dialogue and the history of Jewish, uh, Jewish persecution. So. Oh, it really would be, actually, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Gene Judson, thank you for the question, my friend. Is it a waste of the 21st century people's times to talk about 1900 years old fables? Not a waste of time, because that kind of, let me push back, because that kind of dogmatism is what led the Pittsburgh shooter to enter a synagogue in 2019 and gun down 11 people. And when uh, police officers looked at his social media page, it said, John 8, 44, Jews are the devil. All right. So um, whether you think it's a fable or not, and actually part of me believes that some of that is a fable. Like, like I'm saying that some of those uh, ideas are embellished. And because that's the case, it led to how many like countless Jewish deaths. So I'll match this dogmatism with, uh, with my dogmatism. Very interesting. Hey, we've got another question by Elder Igloo that I finally found. Thank you for your question, Elder Igloo. What are your thoughts on Joseph apparently saying that Judas was a traitor and instead of hanging himself, was hung by Peter? We say, like, are they referring to Joseph Smith? Yes, jo Joseph Smith in the history of the church. Uh, one, and Radio Free Mormon actually pointed this out. To me, what Judas was a traitor, and instead of hanging himself, was hung by Peter. That's kind of an interesting take. Yeah. Yeah, and I wonder where. You know, my first thought is, I wonder where Joseph is getting that. So always where to go back, and you know what what traditions does he have? We know he's reading apocryphal works, uh, those that are available to him. He's quoting them. So yeah, be, that kind of question is fascinating to see how early Mormon tradition, early Mormon like interpretation, like what they're reading uh, that informs this. Yeah, yeah, that would be fun to find that. Uh, actually, Dan Vogel has five volumes of stuff like that. Well, that might be worth looking into. Um, Radio Free Mormon asks, any concern about going on BYP show from anyone? Uh, yeah, this is, uh, there's probably, I don't know if, I don't know if there's going to be a concern by some that it's possible, but I, I asked some of my colleagues, do you think I will get in trouble, you know, going on this? I'm assuming that's what uh, Radio Free Mormon is talking about. Everybody I, I talked to is like, yeah, you know, we, nobody's gotten in trouble for going on a certain venue. I don't think it's usually when somebody, when, when somebody gets in trouble, it's certain things that they've said, uh, LGBT or something else. And yeah, I guess it remains to be seen, but 
as far as I'm concerned, if anybody want to wants to talk to me about my research or about these topics, I'm I'm down with doing it. So yeah, my kind of scholar. <laughs> I, I'm just I'm just saying, if someone watches this show and they're concerned about you showing up, I'm sitting here right now because of the quality of your research, singing the praises of BYU, and I have been known to criticize them. I'm not going to hide that because where criticism is legit, I give it. But I also believe in giving credit where credit's due, and I have said that, and I've demonstrated that on my show too. And this has been delightful. This type of material helps us want to look into the scriptures more. That can't be negative. So from my point of view, you get full credit if if someone wants to, you know, yell at you and, and say, oh, well, you really blew it. I, I'm here to tell you, you've impressed me and I'm not that easy to impress. And you have benefited the scriptural information to where I'm sure there are several in my audience who are going to go back into the Bible and recheck some of this stuff out, including me. So as far as I'm concerned, you're a credit to the institution. So that's yeah. my point of view. But I mean, if, any, if anybody complains about the venue, then I guess they're not going to let us go to the John Whitmer Historical Association because there are people there, you know, in fact, I've been at the Society for the Social Scientific Study of Religion, where I went to the Mormon study section and they're just blasting the church. Okay, so can I not go there anymore and participate? Like, I don't understand the logic that we can't engage people in different audiences uh, just because of a different belief in, in truth claims. Well, we're in the, yeah, we're in a new age too, to where the, it appears to me like the necessity of engaging in different audiences really does need to occur with much more frequency. And this is a great venue to do so. So almost <laughs> see you you're way too nice hobgoblin <laughs> yeah well byu profs are undergoing annual evaluations right now so it is rather courageous to come on the show for one of them <laughs> that's a good compliment my annual uh my annual uh evaluation is uh dr hatch is so well informed and so good at explaining the scriptures that i'm going to have him on many times if if he will and can and even if he won't we're going to sneak him on so after all i am the backyard professor i work magic okay let's see let's see oh so Well, I did say I was going to answer questions. We opened up another subject, uh, Trevin, but but this is a good question from Patrick Kelly. I'll, I'll read your question, Patrick. Thank you for asking it. Excellent. So you're saying the Pharisees wanted to kill him because he was once one of them? And I'm saying the Pharisees didn't want to kill him. Uh, that's, oh. There's the catch. And and leave it at that I, I'm because... Th th this is what makes his chapter so fascinating, Patrick. I promise when I have Dr. Hatch back and we do the Pharisees one, you are in for an eye-opening experience. Or better yet, go get his book and read it and then come back and you'll have more questions still. But yeah, yeah, 
thank you for your question. Don't mean to put you off, but I'm trying to generate some interest because this is without question one of those parts of his book where I had to shut the book, stand up, walk around and go, did Dr. Hash just say what I think he said and reread it and say, yep, he sure did. I love research like this. BYU, you need people like Dr. Hatch who can put out the quality information. This stuff right here, the New Testament, History, Culture, and Society, editor, Blumo, what a fantastic job this man did of bringing disparate, various, excellent scholars together to produce something beyond the same stuff who were Jesus's mom and brothers. Although even that could get pretty hefty, can't it? But anyway, so thank you for, it's time to open up a little bit. And uh, I think Dr. Hatch is on the front end of this, which is absolutely, from my point of view, spectacular. Let's see, any other questions? Looks like we are Running out of questions, you guys are having a lot of fun, which is awesome. Uh, okay, here we go. Oh, Lael. Uh, Mormon's the story. Okay, let, let's. Okay, Mormon Discussion, Inc., at Mormon's Lael. Thank you for re-asking. Appreciate it. I didn't mean to make it difficult for you, I promise. The story of the rich boy coming to Jesus, what does the Greek actually say? I've seen a 1611 version says only one man good, that is only one man good, that is God. Oh, okay, that has nothing to do with Judas, but do you want to Talk about I'd, that. I'd have, to, I'd have to look it up and, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Back. We'd have to. I'll tell you what, Leo. We will look that up and and see because because now you've got my curiosity. I I always like going to the Greek too. So Doctor Hatch and I will make that one of our assignments to look that up. Oh, hey, Dan Vogel is saying something here. Very interesting. Our very good, sharp friend, it was Rigdon who said Peter hanged Judas and suggested that the same should happen to Mormon dissenters. Oh, wow. So it was Rigdon. Thank you, Dan Vogel, for clarifying. Always love having you in the audience. He, he is so sharp with the history of the church and all. Okay. Uh, it looks like let's uh yeah we're at we're at an hour 38 um let's go ahead and do you before we close out dr hatch thank you everybody for all your oh okay uh to i just saw your comment and i will ask it real quick and you don't have to answer this quick if you want to elaborate we're good to asks ask dr hatch to comment on Judas's betrayal as a temple scene, tying it in from his earlier comment. Have yeah, you ever uh, heard that kind of a, an approach or a, a discussion much at all from anyone? Uh, never, you know, not, never seen it except for in Latter-day Saint circles, Latter-day Saint, you know, the tradition circles. And for, I don't see anything there, but I always, to a Latter-day Saint, everything is a temple text, right? <laughs> 
Oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank you for finally saying that. That's been driving me nuts for five years. No offense against any Mormons, honest to goodness, but not everything written can possibly be a temple text. But I will say it's possible to have some of these connections to the temple, but uh, in fact, the word tecton or Jesus as a carpenter, I could probably do that another time. I do think that there's a lot of connections to the temple there. But in order to get there, you have to go through and see what Matthew, what words he's using, what episodes in Hebrew scriptures he's using to get there. Um, but there's a lot of Latter-day Saints that will just go look into it and be like, oh, this is similar and reminiscent of what Mormons do. So from, from a, a Latter-day Saint angle, I don't see anything. In order to see something, I have to go through Matthew. I have to go through a first century Jewish author or another, another one of the authors. And I don't see that. Okay, that's legit. Okay, thank you for your question, T.O. That was awesome. Uh, okay, so we're gonna uh, we're gonna close out before we do, Doctor Hatch. Do you have any uh, closing ideas or things you'd like to say that uh, that you think we skipped over? Or, uh, no, I'm good. I I thank everybody for letting me come on and, and talk about this stuff. Um, if anybody's interested, this will be, uh, I just happened to see this. I'm not sure how much of your audience listening now will appreciate it, but this is a book that, so I've got this book that came out like the Jesus book is not written to Latter-day Saint audience, but this book, Greater Love Hath No Man, um, by the title, it seems kind of fluffy, but what we just, what we decided to do, Eric Huntsman and I, he's the, the Jerusalem Center director right now. We wanted to put a guide. The subtitle is A Guide to Celebrating Holy Week, a Latter-day Saint Guide to Celebrating Holy Week. Oh, nice. So some of you, you know, even if you're not uh, in the church or some of you who are in the church, you'll appreciate, you might appreciate we just go every day through Holy Week. And what we're trying to do is get people in the Latter-day Saint tradition to appreciate what Christians have done at that time of year. Um, and so maybe some of it will help you. When we go through, we give this, the, the scriptural text, the events that, happened to Jesus that he that relevant to that particular day throughout the last week. And then we give, you know, so we give you that, we give you some scholarship, a lot of stuff you're getting here. Like we don't hold back. We give a lot of good scholarship. Then we have a section on how Christians have historically observed that particular day all throughout Europe and everything. So that's interesting. And then the last section is suggestions for Latter-day Saints um, on how they might observe these traditions. And so again, even if you're, you know, if you're not a Latter-day Saint or you're, post library saying or whatever, I still think you, you might benefit from it. So that that's not out yet, but that's the most recent project. So you're out. still, you're still working and chugging and churning good materials out for us to, to read. And now we're going to churn and chug and produce excellent video reviews and, and uh, ideas and comments with the audience and take questions and learn visually as well as intellectually, as well as through, the reading and the literature. So good things are coming our way, which is always exciting as far as I'm concerned. Okay, you guys. Well, we're going to call it good. Thank you so much for showing. And thank you for your questions and your comments. And we will have Dr. Hatch back again to discuss much more of his book and his articles. In the meantime, remember, a stranger from Jerusalem, go get that book. It's on Amazon.com. It's not expensive. It is superb. 
I really loved how he clarified so much of the difficulty in between the gaps with the Gospels and in between the gaps of the Gospels and Paul. It was just doggone well fun and worth reading. So thank you, Dr. Hatch. It has been an absolute pleasure. We're going to slide out of here and talk behind the scenes. In the meantime, remember, have fun, do well, be good, work hard, smile lots. It makes people wonder what you're doing. And we will see you guys next week on the same time, same place. Thanks, everyone.